Revelation chapter 6. I'll read the entire chapter. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud or with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, those who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the skies fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, And who can stand? This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would bless the reading of Your Word. And that as we open it up, now You would send Your Spirit to effectually apply it to our hearts. That we, the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, would be comforted as we see What is to be our plight in this world? Lord, I don't think we're going to receive any new information today, but I believe that we need to have these things pressed upon our hearts. That we would believe them. That we would live in light of them. Perhaps conviction of sin would settle in. That we realize that though we say we believe these things, we live as though they were not true. 
We expect the world to be different than Your Word clearly declares it will be. Help our unbelief, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, as we begin this, this chapter, I want to remind you that we're in the, the second of seven cycles of visions that take place in the book of the Revelation. The purpose of these visions, remember, is to give the saints, especially those seven churches in Asia Minor, a heavenly perspective on their world. Remember, the first vision that, that sort of spans... Uh, chapters 2 and 3 primarily, we could barely see over their heads and shoulders. We were in and amongst the people. We're seeing their sufferings. We're seeing their trials. We're seeing the things that they had to deal with. And we see that a lot of their same issues have come down to us. And now we've moved into the heavens. In chapters 4 and 5, we saw the state of heaven during all of this. The saints are able to see that what they see on the earth is not exactly the way God sees it. But He has a heavenly perspective and verses or chapters 4 and 5 set forth for us the Lamb seated upon His throne, God and the Lamb taking their place on the throne of history. The Lamb has been given the scroll of redemptive history and has been proclaimed by all of creation as the only one worthy to take this scroll and to break its seals, to unravel it, to open it up. Christ Himself is the mediator of all of history. Nothing comes down the pipeline from the decree of God, especially upon the people of God, without first passing through the mediation of our Lord. Now in chapter 7, we're going to get a glimpse of the saints in glory. The, the saints having been brought to be with God and the Lamb. And lest we think that as seeing God sovereign upon His throne, as seeing the Lamb worthy to be slain, lest we begin to think, hey, Christ has been exalted, He's been given the scroll, He's in charge. Everything should begin to really start to smooth out from this point. We have chapter 6. And it describes the state of the world during the present time, or what we might call the gospel age. Our Lord begins to break open these seals. And if you can imagine the picture, remember that the, the breaking of the seals is not the unraveling or the carrying out of all of the details of the scroll itself. It's merely revealing what will be the overarching characteristics of the present age and remember, all of this is to be seen through the lens of the church. This is for the saints of God to be comforted. And especially those churches, those real churches in Asia Minor. So the question is, what can we expect? As we live in the world, as we await the return of Christ, what can we expect will characterize the world? The first thing that we see is the advance of the gospel. In Revelation 6, 1 and 2, Again, I watched the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now you would be surprised at how many different interpretations there are of the rider on the white horse here. Some of the options, Christ... Because in Revelation 19, we see Christ riding on a white horse. 
Some of the other options, not maybe directly or specifically, specifically Christ Himself, but perhaps the church and the gospel going forward through the ministry of the church on the earth. Some would say this is a satanic imitation of Christ. Some would say a military conquest or the quest for power. Now, these are not ignorant men who, who put forth these interpretations and they, ha- they have good reasons. I've settled down on this, which is for older writers, a majority view. For more modern writers, a minority position. That this is a picture of at least the gospel going forward through the ministry of the church. Again, I think it does have some relation to Revelation 19, the only other time in the book that we see a rider on a white horse who is there explicitly called Christ, the Lord Jesus. Now, in, in this chapter, the horses and their riders, none of the other ones have uh, identifiable riders. It's not like we can name the person who's on the second one or the third one. So to say that this is supposed to show us specifically Christ, that's kind of hard even though I don't have a problem with that. Because it does say that He was given a crown. The word crown here is not a a royal kingly crown, but a, a victor's crown, a victor's wreath. And it does say that He's going out conquering, that is, He's accomplishing the conquering work, and He's going out to conquer, to continue doing that same work. Throughout the Revelation, except for two exceptions, this idea of conquering is only used to describe Christ and His church. I would add to that Psalm 45, verses 2-5, through which I think fill out this picture a little better. We know this is speaking of the Lord Jesus, and it says, You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, Almighty One, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So we have Christ here, full of the Holy Spirit, dressed in full battle regalia, riding out to battle. He has a sword, Revelation 19. He also has a bow, Revelation 6, which is really, when, when the interpreters argue over this passage and the commentators argue, they have, a, have trouble seeing Christ having a sword and a bow. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 45 didn't have a problem with that. The picture seems to be that during this present age, the gospel is going to go forward. There will be what we could call gospel advance. We see this in the parables of our Lord in Matthew 13. The kingdom will be set up. It's going to be like a mustard seed, small, and it will grow. There will be progress. The very next parable, leaven in a lump of dough. The, the, The permeation of this kingdom is going to go forth almost imperceptibly, and yet it will leaven the whole lump. We've seen this in Revelation before, Revelation 3.8. It's Christ who opens the door of the gospel witness for the church of Philadelphia, sending forth His gospel. So again, I think the picture is at least Christ, through His church, writing forth and proclaiming the gospel. And by His Spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel, His enemies are subdued. As we just heard, we were once far off, We who were once born enemies come here now and we would say, 
I, a former enemy of the king, have been pierced by the arrows of truth and meekness and righteousness, and I have been subdued. I I woke up today and I, I could do no other than to gather with the saints and to worship. This is who I am now. There, there are no other options in my mind. I've been subdued. Again, in Psalm 45, the mighty one rides forth. His arrows go forth piercing. He's gathering his bride, the queen in gold of Ophir, the church. Now notice that this is what leads the way. This, this horse and this rider are first. History is defined and ordered around the advance of the gospel. Our preaching of the gospel and the advance of the kingdom of Christ is not a reaction to the wickedness on the earth. The, the Christ's kingdom work is not our retaliation against the forces of darkness. The mission of our king is dictating history. Church history is real history. You hear people say this all the time. They don't believe it, but they'll say, history is His story. Well, tell me about history. And then they go into World War I, World War II, Napoleon. and uh, You're not telling me anything about His story. You're not telling me about Christ. We have to understand that from God's perspective, the history of the world is merely the history of the kingdom of His Son advancing on the earth. Again, we've, we've been taught this way, to read history through the lens of everything that is opposed to Christ's kingdom, as if men in the world are breaking seals, as if mere mortals are unraveling the scroll, and Christ is, is trying to, with all of His effort, trying to stay out in the front of what's happening in the world, and that's not so. Church history is not a, a subset of real history. Church history is history. Christ dictates history. The church is the real news. The movement of the gospel. The planting of churches. The training and sending of men. Our our thoughts and our considerations of the nations and where people and men ought to be sent and where we ought to go. That should be utmost in the minds of believers at all points, at all times. Because this is our history. This is history from God's perspective. So the gospel will go forward. Number two, the second thing sort of coming along the coattails of the gospel. And all of this, I would say, it's just riding on the coattails of Christ's mission in the world. The second thing we see is persecution in verses 3 and 4. Another horse comes out, bright red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. As Christ rides forth conquering and to conquer, accomplishing and to accomplish, that doesn't mean the world is just immediately fixed. We've all experienced this. Lost men, as the Scriptures say, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving one another and being deceived. So There is a general truth set forth here that people are going to kill each other, but that's also referenced under the fourth seal. The idea here, I think, is that this word slay, or to kill is the word that's used throughout the Revelation to describe the slaughter of either Christ or the people of God. There's a different word that's used later for for killing in general. And remember that all of this has to do with the church at the center of history. It's revealed for the comfort of the saints. So what do the people of God need to know about our preaching? As we go out, 
as we are preaching the gospel, what is one thing that I need to keep in the forefront of my mind? What should the church uh, keep in the forefront of her mind as she proceeds with the mission? Well, one of those things is persecution very often comes with the preaching of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Preaching brings a sword. And this is not new. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches and he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Are they, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. This has always been the case. In the world where you have the true preaching of God's gospel, persecution comes right along with it. We should expect that. People left outside the ranks of the kingdom will grow increasingly more hostile to the saints as the gospel goes forward. And when men are hostile, we don't have to stop and think, I, I, I guess I'm doing something wrong. Because as I was preaching, the gospel that I feel like is the biblical gospel, people just got really angry. They got upset. They, they, we shouldn't think I'm doing something wrong. We should say, this is a real response from the Word of God that I should expect to the preaching of the gospel. Not everybody is going to respond in hostility, and we don't revel in the fact that people respond in hostility, but we can be comforted that we're, we're probably on the right path if this is a response. Back in chapter 2, he said, Yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed. Had they done something wrong? No, they, they were right on track. This assures them that they're doing what they've been sent out to do. So there will be persecution. Thirdly, one specific manifestation of this persecution is what I've entitled economic distress. In our world, and you can see this the way people have responded in recent days, we tend to imagine that persecution only comes in the form of death carried out by men who wear shirts that say persecutors, who ask you, are you a Christian? Well, let me verify that. How do you feel about the Trinity? How do you feel about the deity of Christ? Okay, we've got a Christian, guys. Let's kill them. And if, they're, if they don't do that, well, they're not really persecuting the church. And that's how we typically think that persecution is going to come. But throughout history, that's rarely been the case. Most often, persecution comes in the form of undergoing some affliction because of a specific manifestation of living out true Christianity. People aren't typically put to death just because they call themselves Christians. That has happened. But usually the ones doing that, that type of killing they would know a true Christian from a false Christian. It's merely a manifestation, very often just an external profession, a manifestation of biblical Christianity. Usually it comes because Christians are living out biblical Christianity and that puts them at odds with their culture. It flips on the light, exposing all of the darkness, and wicked men don't like that. We saw this in, in chapters 2 and 3. Remember the the setting of this original, these original churches and their, their trade guilds and their patron deities and the, the parties and the celebrations and the sacrifices and the worship that was expected of the people of God. Here it says, When he opened the third seal, a black horse comes. His rider had a pair of scales in his hand. 
And then there's this voice from the midst of the four living creatures coming from within the throne room. He says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. A quart of wheat is enough for one man for one day. A denarius is a day's wages. So here, here the, the economic system is being set up. One man works all day, makes enough money to buy himself food for that day. This man's probably got a wife. This man's probably got children. How are they to survive? Barley is sort of a lower grade food, a lower grade grain than wheat. So you could get a little more of the lower grade wheat for the same price. But the oil and the wine, luxuries, they're left. Don't mess with the oil and the wine. Now think about it. Who's going to be affected by this kind of system? Where the luxuries of life, they're left the same. If you can afford those, go for it. But, but the bare necessities, those things are going to get more and more difficult to come by. It's not going to be the rich. The rich are not affected by this. It's going to be the lower classes of people. The basic necessities are barely affordable. Luxuries are left untouched. Now there, there are, have been, will be, we are even experiencing times of prosperity where God blesses the labors of His people and it's not our job to smack His hand and say, don't give me any blessings. But we also have to realize that there will come times when being a Christian, living according to godly principles and biblical convictions, refusing to lower the bar of righteousness, standing firm upon the truth, that's going to cost you the ability to go on living in prosperity. We have prosperity now. That might not always be the case. But if we have in our mind this idea that Christianity can, can only ever produce prosperity and that any type of, of economic distress is, is unchristian, we're in for a sore awakening if these times come upon our country. And in these times, and I've said this before, we're not going to be able to use the biblical mandate of provision to excuse compromise. If we're not prepared for this, then we're going to be the first ones to sacrifice truth, to sacrifice holiness, and we can cloak it with, well, I've got to provide. And so our families will go on warm and fed to their graves, having never seen... Anybody live out biblical Christianity. Never seen anyone actually willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. So we could expect that in this world. Economic distress. The fourth thing we see, moving a little more broadly, I've called unnatural death. Verses 7 and 8. This horse is a pale horse, a sickly looking horse, a, a, a green colored horse. Its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now this structure of judgment is taken from Ezekiel 14. Verse 21, thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence to cut off from it man and beast. When there is pestilence in the land, we do not have to ask, what is God doing? This is one of His four disastrous acts of judgment. We see this historically, again even down to the present day, 
a large portion of the human race doesn't get the pleasure of dying quietly in their sleep. The sword, a different word that was used earlier, is killing, murder, stirred up by animosity between men. Famine, that's hunger and starvation, which to us is a foreign concept. But around the world is not foreign at all. Wild beasts, either attacking people themselves or ravaging the land. Again, this seems odd to us, but I looked it up. Over 930,000 people were killed by animals in 2018 around the world, and that's going up. You would think in a modernized society we would kind of move on past being killed by animals. But we're not. It's, it's getting worse. And um, mosquitoes are the number one killer of human beings. So enjoy your summer. All of creation, we know this, all of creation suffers during this present time. Creation is not going to be loose from this suffering until, as, as Paul says in Romans 8, the revealing of the sons of God. It's it's groaning too. And as Christians, we're not immune to this. We can't say, Christ, you've got the scroll. You're in in charge. Why are we dying? As Paul said, we're being being slaughtered all the day long like sheep led to the slaughter. What's happening here? He says, no, this is a part of it. This is a part of living in a fallen world. We live in a world plagued with death. And what, what does this do except, hopefully, cause us to long for the return of our Lord, to long for another country. And that's what we see next in verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This cry, we can see this in the psalm. Some form of it has always characterized the people of God. How long? How long? Now there is a little bit of debate as to whether we ought to keep this exclusively for those who had been martyred or if we could broader it to all of those who had endured unto death. But the idea is that these people who have already gone on before, they have died, they've been killed, they were faithful to the end, now they find themselves under the altar. They're in the presence of God, which is a great comfort to the saints. They're in the presence of God. The altar, more than likely, the altar of incense for the prayers, the pictures, the prayers coming before God. He can hear them. He's right near them. We see their state, the the souls of them, they remain in that state of disillusion. Their bodies have not yet joined their spirits. And they cry out, How long, O Lord, before You will judge and avenge our blood? They know God will judge. God will avenge His people. But how long? How long can we endure this? Antipas had been slain, so he's there. Saints in Smyrna were about to be killed. They're about to be there. We know Stephen is there. All of the other apostles, including the Apostle Paul, they're there and they're crying out, how long? And here we're reminded that we can rest assured God will avenge the blood of His people. It says that He gives them a white robe, the heavenly apparel of the saints, which we'll see more of in the future, a white robe, and He says, rest a little longer. There is rest. As soon as we leave these bodies and enter into the presence of our Lord, there is rest. And he says, just 
Keep resting. Rest a little longer. Even prior to the eternal glorified state, there is rest. But there is also an end in sight. Only God knows when this will be. But the saints cry out and He says, just rest. So we see here the present age will be a time of longing. Not only do we on earth long for the return of our Lord, but those gone before us cry out to God, how long? How long can we endure this? When, we, when you get to that point, some of you have never been to that point, but when you get to that point where you actually, from your gut, cry out, how long can this go on? How, how can we endure this? As we look at our world today, and we see uprisings and protests and turmoil and the way churches are acting, the way leaders are speaking out, and we say, what, what are you saying? What is happening in the world? How long can this possibly exist and or, uh, take place and there continue to be a church existent in the world? How long, Lord? He says, rest. There will come a day when the, there will never again be heard the prayer, how long, O Lord? That day's coming, but not yet. We see that day coming in, in the next seal. Justice will be served. Now the breaking of this seal and the events that come along with it start here and go through chapter 7. Again in chapter 7 we get a, we get a, a little bit of a detailed view of the glorified church. But before we get there, we get a glimpse of the judgment that's going to come upon the wicked. Not a, not a very detailed glimpse, but a little bit. We see first this picture of cosmic decomposition. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. Just picture this. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was being removed from its place. It's hard for us to even imagine this without our minds going to to some sort of uh, computer animated images of, of these things. The picture is clearly symbolic, but the symbolism is clearly catastrophic. Very similar to what we read in Matthew 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, some of you remember when we walked through that section of Matthew 24, we looked at multiple passages in the Old Testament that use this exact same language for the overthrowing of the kingdoms of the world. And this has led a lot of people to believe that this language is only descriptive of the overthrowing of, a, of an earthly kingdom. Well, the problem with that is the overthrowing of an earthly kingdom is in itself described catastrophically because it points to a greater and final ultimate cosmic overthrow. All earthly kingdoms meeting their final destruction. So this is going to happen. The, The crumbling of all of the kingdoms of the world. And then we get a glimpse of how people are going to respond. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful... And everyone, slave and free, every class of people, notice seven, seven groups, every class of people, the totality of, the, of humanity in opposition to God, none accepted. 
from the highest echelons of our society, top four penthouse suites, all the way down to back alleys and grass huts, all types of people, it says, hiding themselves from this one in caves and among rocks, and they're, they're calling for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? And that's it. The picture stops. It's just a glimpse. It ends in this, this terror and sudden realization that the sovereign Lamb has come to exact vengeance on all mankind. The, the lamb who was slain returns as the lamb who is about to slaughter. There will come a day of reckoning with this lamb. People that we know who have willfully, purposefully rejected the gospel and said, I don't want to hear that. Other people who have perhaps not willfully, but just sort of in, in their neutrality, refused to come to Christ. They're all going to stand and give an account before this Lamb. He will come in judgment. I think I know personally friends who find a little bit of satisfaction in claiming agnostic. An agnostic is not an atheist. To be agnosis means they just believe you can't know that. That's not a knowledge we, we can find out. And so they find a little bit of comfort in not denouncing the existence of a God, but just sort of comforting themselves that, well, maybe there is and I'm not the one who's going to call the, the shot here. Those same people will find themselves crying out for the rocks and the mountains to destroy them. It'll be a moment of absolute horror. And But by the time they realize what's happening, the only thing left to do will be to, to beg for annihilation. Pleading for annihilation. A lot of people don't believe in eternal conscious torment. And so they have some opinion of annihilation. It's very interesting that the, the wicked of the earth here are crying out for the very same thing that these people have conjured up in their minds. It won't be that bad. There is no eternal torment. It'll just be destruction. Well, that's what the wicked hope for. That's what they beg for. That's what they wish for. But it's not the case. And they will for all eternity wish that they could just stop existing. Just let me cease to exist. And it will not be. Now, this chapter gives us information and this information encourages us. I want to go back to the beginning and point out several things. In verse 2, a crown was given. Notice the, the, the passiveness of this rider. A crown was given. In verse 4, another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted, and he was given a great sword. In verse 6, the voice comes from the midst of the throne room of heaven. In verse 8, death and Hades were given authority. Notice there's this, this unnamed ruler over all of this, who's, who's giving permission, who's giving a sword, who's giving a crown, who's giving authority. And, and this one is not named here, but we understand these things, they are going to happen, but all of them are under the supervision of the sovereign Lamb. He's the one breaking the scroll or breaking the seals. Heaven and the angels and all creation have already affirmed He's the one worthy. He's the one 
ruling all of this. And He will do right by His people. So we remember what this world is, what is going to be our plight in this world. We know that there will be suffering. And we know that He rules over it all. He's sovereign over these things. Now as we watch people suffer, this is where we get to see their relationship to this world and the next world. As we look in the mirror and watch ourselves suffer, this is where we see our relationship to this world and the next world. Because either you're going to learn that you're tethered so tightly to this world that you can't even think of the next world, which is much of our society, or you're going to find out that you're, you're so drawn to the next world that the things of this world are, are quickly forgotten. This, it's this kind of otherworldly reality that allows us to overcome the present world. This is our faith. It overcomes this world. I have something in me that is evidence of things I can't see, things I'm hoping for. The men of this world struggle to see past this life. So when trials come your way, here's a question. Do you dig in your heels and begin to grasp at every straw under the heavens something? Give me a little temporal hope. Give me a little temporal satisfaction. Or do trials serve to just pry your fingers off of the things of this world? This is why older saints, you, we've all heard the stories of older saints who say, I'm ready. I've, I've had enough of this. You don't have to just say no more. I'm ready. When the, when the bus comes around, I'm ready to go. Because suffering and affliction for years pries our fingers off of this world and, and hopefully helps us to turn our eyes to Christ. That's, that's the whole point, is to get us to set our eyes upon one outside of this world. So we ought to be encouraged. Our King is conquered. He is conquering. He will bring the final victory. As James Durham says, we weren't cast out of Eden to come out here and make another paradise. And if we are, we're working contrary to God. Our lot in this world is one of suffering, which leads to glory. And if we're on that pathway of suffering leading to glory. We know that we're not far behind the steps of our Lord. We're in the steps He trod. Because that was His plot. He didn't come in majesty and power and glory the first time. He came suffering. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. But He had a joy set before Him on the other side of the cross. A, a glory to come. That's, that's the path we trod. We, we follow in the trails of our Lord. Just as the head has led the way, so the body follows in that same pathway. The question is, are you satisfied with that? Is that okay with you? Can you comfort yourself if you begin to see your kingdom crumble? Does it satisfy you at all to say, well, that's fine. His kingdom is being built. I'm, I'm unaffected. As long as I know that His kingdom is advancing, I'm comforted there. I'm satisfied. Well, as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, we are privileged to know that whatever suffering or affliction we might endure in this life, we know that it's not wrath. We know that it's not punishment for sins because Christ Himself has endured the wrath of Almighty God in the place of sinners on the cross. And so we give our attention now to the cross. And if it helps, perhaps, to keep this in your back pocket whenever you must endure affliction and suffering, just ask yourself, 
Am I hanging naked on a cross? Am I enduring the wrath of God the Almighty for sins not mine? No. I'm merely following in the footsteps of my Lord. So let's give our attention to the meditation of Christ crucified and then we'll come to the table.